0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vat, the host. Joining us, as he does almost every single week, is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you and talk to you. Now, we're recording this a few weeks before the episode goes live. You're getting ready to go out of the country to Panama for the big
1: World oh, yeah. Youth Day. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I leave tonight because I've got to drive to L.A. and then uh, get the plane early tomorrow morning, which goes right to Panama City. And, yeah, World Youth Day, I I wasn't planning on going, honestly. And then I got an invitation uh, not that long ago to speak at the Benediction, uh, which I I look forward to. It's a big big gathering in this arena. I don't know how many thousands of kids, but uh, it's a chance to speak to a lot of people at one time. And, uh, yeah, I like World Youth Day. I've been to two. I've been to Madrid and to Krakow. So it'll be my third one. Um, And, yeah, I leave tonight from here and then early tomorrow morning. Then it's a quick trip. I'm just there – for Wednesday. The talk is late Wednesday evening, and I come back Thursday morning.
0: Bishop is speaking at a special event that's being co-organized by the USCCB, the Knights of Columbus, and Focus. And our friends at Focus are going to be live streaming the talk. And so the video will be available by the time this goes live. So if you're interested in watching Bishop Barron's talk, you can find it online. Uh, Bishop, today we're going to be talking about one of the people we focused on in a couple episodes in the past, namely Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's one of the most fascinating intellectual figures uh, on the scene today. He's the author of the best selling book, 12 Rules for Life, which spent many, many, many weeks on top of the all the bestseller lists. i th- i still think it's pretty high up there last time i checked um but you've recently wrote an article about dr jordan peterson and a conversation partner sam harris you said that mm-hmm. over the holiday break you sort of binge watched a lot of the stage dialogues that peterson and harris shared with each other um maybe just to get started here give us a refresher who is dr jordan peterson what should we know about him why is he significant
1: Well, you said most of it. I mean, he's a a psychology professor from Toronto who emerged the last couple of years really, just pretty recently, as a major internet phenomenon. Uh, Very smart guy, Jungian uh, psychologist by training, a practicing psychotherapist, but also a theorist about a lot of cultural issues. And he came on the radar screen in Canada over a lot of his gender um, uh, debates and pronouns and all that stuff. But then he started doing these talks on, um, psychological themes and now on biblical and I'd call them sort of spiritual themes that have been very, very popular. And, um, you know, he's a smart guy who's got a knack for, um, you know, kind of naming things in a, in a uh, provocative way. So he stirred up a lot of, uh, both controversy and enthusiasm. Um, I, I've enjoyed listening to him a lot and, uh, you know, so that's Jordan Peterson. And then, um. Sam Harris, you know, is one of the four horsemen of the new atheisms, along with Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett. Sam Harris is the fourth of the four horsemen. So these guys emerged after 9/11, early 2000s. Uh, Harris wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation," which is a, a sharp polemic against, you know, religion, but Christianity in particular. Uh, he's a also very uh, sharp, articulate uh, fellow. Uh, he continues to be one of the most strident critics of of religion, and he and Peterson were paired because Peterson's begun speaking in a more positive way, uh, not you know as as positively as I would want to speak about religion, but but still quite a few steps away from from Sam Harris. So they've paired them together uh, to have these debates. So when I was home, as you say, um I spent some time watching these I enjoy that kind of thing, and I looked at a number of these um conversations between him and, and Harris and just found them fascinating you know I want to talk about
0: some of the ideas that they exchange and I want to dig into that a little bit but first of all let's just let's just pause and consider the significance of sort of this quasi-religious guy Peterson on stage with a very outspoken atheist Sam Harris having a civil substantial dialogue like to yeah. me I'm like more of that we need more of that yeah
1: Absolutely. I think that's great, Uh, and less shouting and more conversing. I'll tell you something, too, and I'd never heard this term before, and I I learned it from this debate. The moderator said, now we're going to begin tonight by asking each man to steel man the other's argument. I thought, steel man? What what does that mean? Well, then it quickly became apparent to straw man an argument, right, is to present it in the weakest way so you can just knock it down easily. So the opposite of that is to steel man, meaning – as best you can, present your opponent's position um, strongly. Present it in the most convincing way possible. And I thought that's really a good uh, exercise for anyone involved in this kind of uh, debate. That would benefit people a lot on the Internet, in those Internet uh, uh, fever swamps, if they could learn to do that, to say, okay, before we go any further, I'm going to steel man your argument. I'm going to try to state as as persuasively as possible, what you're saying. So uh, anyway, that's, that's a term that I, I learned from watching their uh, debates. Now, inevitably, in each of these
0: debates, Sam Harris begins by citing a long litany of wrongs that religion yeah. in general, but Christianity in particular, has committed over the centuries. So things like <laughs> oppression, violence, slavery, genocide, mm-hmm. inquisitions, witch hunts. But then you write in your recap of these discussions, speaks Turns the attention to to really two extremes that help explain some of these problems. One of them is fundamentalism.
1: The other is chaotic relativism. Talk yeah. about those two extremes. Yeah, I thought that was helpful. You know, the move that Harris makes. I mean, every single critic of religion from time immemorial has made a similar move. And to fill the picture out, it's something like this: religion is uh, is irrational. Um, it's dogmatic. It's unself-critical. Uh, it relies on on superstition and and pure faith, which is why it's not surprising that it becomes so corrupt because elements within it that would provide self-critique are eliminated. And so naturally, it tends toward this kind of extreme um, expression. Uh, well, see, Peterson largely agrees with that. It reminds me there of um uh, what's his name, the great Dominican uh, Herbert McCabe, when he would debate atheists, he would, Almost always begin by saying, "I agree with you completely," In other words, because he thought that what they were knocking down was essentially a straw man. Well, anyway, uh, Peterson largely agrees with that, and what he says is, "It's it's a Jungian sort of language. There's a sh- shadow that always haunts religion, and it's the shadow of fundamentalism." So everything I just named—you know, unself-critical, uh, uh, unreasonable, fideistic, um, uh hypercritical of one's opponents, etc. Those are all marks of a fundamentalistic attitude. Maybe today we'd see it more clearly in forms of Islam, you know, but you can see it in almost every major religion. And Peterson is saying, yeah, I grant you, that's a shadow of religion. But, as I read him, don't reduce religion to its shadow. And that's a typical Christopher Hitchens move. They all do that. They'll take the worst side of religious expression and simply say, that's religion. Where I would say with Peterson, no, that's the shadow of religion, you know, that we have to acknowledge. Okay. Now, then Peterson makes the next move, which is to say, yeah, I'll grant you there's this shadow side, but there's another shadow, which is chaotic relativism. If you go lurching away from what you perceive as dogmatism, that you go running in the opposite direction, You can run right into the arms of this chaotic relativism. There is no truth. There is no meaning. Everything's up for grabs. Everything's relativistic. What they said, you know, 100 years ago is no longer true. What we say now won't be true in 100 years. It's all up for grabs. Well, that, says Peterson, and I agree with him, is just as deleterious. It's just as destructive. That's the shadow, if you want, of uh, secularist rationalism. And so might we explore the territory that lies in between uh, fundamentalism and uh, uh, relativism, chaotic relativism? So I thought that was a legitimate move and that there is plenty of space that we could move into and and explore in between those two extremes.
0: Say a little bit more about the danger of chaotic relativism, because in your commentary on these exchanges, you've said that this relativism is anchorless impotent, without moral seriousness, but it's proven to be just as dangerous as fundamentalism.
1: How's that so? And Well, for those very reasons. See, if you say, you know, finally, who knows what's morally right? Well, thank you. That's an invitation to every totalitarian dictator up and down the centuries. There is no morality. Therefore, why not? As wasn't it Lenin or was it Stalin? One of the two. You know, you got to crack some eggs to make an omelet. And if that means killing a few million people, well, so be it. There is no moral absolute. That's a pretty dangerous position to move into. The same with epistemological relativism. There's no truth. Nothing's true. Well, then, see, watch out, because powerful people are going to move right into that vacuum and say, I've got no restraints. There's nothing objectively true. In fact, I'll tell you what's true. You know, is two with two equal to five? Yeah, if I say so. See, so the trouble is, if, if you evacuate the moral and epistemological realm of something like real objective truth, powerful people are going to move tyrannically into that space. And, and by God, have we seen it over the centuries, including in very recent years, you know? So that's why I, I, I'm not going to claim with Sam Harris, oh, yeah, the, the problem is uniquely religious fundamentalism. No, no, no. I'm just as worried, if not more worried about a sort of secularistic fundamentalism, uh, which is this chaotic relativism. So
0: you point out that we need to find sort of a middle path or a third way between these two extremes. And that's what Peterson tries to do in a lot of these discussions. Um, But what emerges when he's talking about his solution is a Kantian approach. Now, I guess, first of all, tell us a little bit about Immanuel Kant and what's significant, at
1: least in relation to this conversation. Well, let me do something first, though, Brandon, because I, 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 what Peterson does is—and he does it very consistently—is he will say the great narratives, let's say, of the biblical tradition, which he knows the best, the great narratives of the biblical tradition contain within themselves certain moral forms and, and principles. And these principles are—and I think he's right about this—are best exemplified in narrative form. So you can state a moral principle abstractly, or you can tell a story that exemplifies it. Which one is better? Everyone agrees the story is better, right? Which is why the Bible has the form that it has. So in the stories of the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel and the flood of Noah and the call of Abraham, et cetera, uh, Cain and Abel, in all these great stories, there are, I call them moral and psychological principles that are so fundamental and so ancient and so archetypal that they remain of extraordinary significance to this day, that we can't really live our moral lives outside of this kind of narrative uh, illumination, this narrative display of the fundamentals of the moral life. That's as I take Jordan Peterson as he reads, and very effectively, I think he reads with with penetrating insight a lot of these biblical stories— Uh, Now, that approach is kind of Jungian. I've used the word archetypal, and that's a a Jungian term, right? The archetypes of the collective unconscious are these great patterns of meaning that are often embedded in the rituals and narratives of the great traditions Uh, come right up to Star Wars. So... Um, George Lucas, influenced by Joseph Campbell, who himself was a Jungian, like Jordan Peterson. And you see in the Star Wars narrative, right, which, again, beautiful. Every kid in the world knows and loves that narrative. Now, why? Because it embodies certain psychological and moral structures that make our, our lives possible. So that's, I think, the, the space that Jordan Peterson likes to, uh, to explore,
0: We've done a couple episodes uh, on the podcast in the past about Jordan Peterson and these Jungian archetypes. So if you missed that, if, if all of these names and terms are a little hazy, go back and listen to those. I think it'll fill in some of the gaps. But what you point out here in this latest commentary is that he seems to admire the moral principles and the moral framework of the Bible, but he seems somewhat ambivalent toward the historicity or or the existence of metaphysical
1: things like God or, you know, objective morality. Talk a little bit about that. Well, right. And that's where I see the Kantian connection. Uh, so God, and people have pressed Jordan Peterson again and again on the question, do you believe in God? And I understand his reticence about giving to some, you know, one univocal answer, because people uh, take the term in such a, a multivalent way. I get that. But what he tends to do is to bracket as you say, the grand metaphysical questions, you know, uh, cosmological arguments. Is there, in fact, a first uh, metaphysical principle that lies behind the contingency of the world? Is there, in fact, a great intelligent uh, source behind the intelligibility of the world? And You know, these these classical cosmological arguments. He tends not so much to refute them as, as to set them aside and to move into, I think, a much more uh, Kantian space. Now, here I'm referring to the great Immanuel Kant, as you say, 18th century uh, Prussian philosopher, probably the greatest of the modern philosophers, grounded in people like you know Descartes and, and Spinoza and so on, Hume. But, but Kant in some ways sums up a lot of the instincts of modern philosophy. Well, what do you find in Kant but a very similar move? In the Critique of Pure Reason, his first great critique – he effectively brackets the metaphysical questions about God, that, that pure reason on its own can't attain to this, this metaphysical realm, because all it can really talk about, Kant says, is the world of phenomena, what appears. Phenomena as they are ordered and received by the a priori notions of the mind. So there's the critique of pure reason. He tends to uh, undo in his mind or unravel the classical arguments, because they, they, don't, they don't work. However, now move to the second critique, the critique of practical reason, which talks about the moral life. And here Kant uses language that I think is echoed very much in Jordan Peterson, namely that God is a sort of pure idea of the practical reason that makes the moral life possible. Now, I can't go into all the details. Read commentaries on Kant, or if, if, if you dare, get the critique of practical reason and go through it. But... God is a what he calls a regulative idea of the practical reason. Now, take one more step. Uh, uh, what some call the fourth critique as a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. Kant writes that at the very end of his career, religion, he says, there comes down fundamentally to ethics. Religion is basically about ethics. So liturgy and and uh, metaphysics and and uh, all this business, sacraments, th- that's all trivial or secondary. What it really comes down to is ethics. Again, that sounds a bit like Peterson, where there's a great interest in in, in the ethical life. But then secondly, Kant says, Jesus is also a kind of regulative idea of this ethical religion.
0: <laughs>
1: Did Jesus actually exist? I, I, I don't know. Does it matter for Kant? Not really. What matters is the role he plays in the grounding narrative of the New Testament, because he is the exemplification of the person perfectly pleasing to God, Kant says, right? The idea of the person perfectly pleasing to God appears in narrative form in the New Testament. And so as I listened to Peterson, I kept thinking, ah, it's the Kantian approach again, Tending to bracket metaphysics, focusing on on ethics, on morality, and tending to see the uh, the archetypal significance of these narrative moves and characters, you know. So in that way, I think he is Jung for our time. He's also very Nietzschean. That could be talked for another day. But I think he's also very much a Kantian figure for our time. I don't want to psychoanalyze Jordan Peterson
0: in this podcast. And we're hoping, I know a lot of people are going to email us to ask, uh, when are Bishop Barron and Jordan Peterson getting together? We're working on that. We've got some good leads. Um, hopefully we'll get you guys together here in the in the next few months. Um, but when you're talking with with somebody coming from a Jungian background or a Kantian background, how do you help them take the next step beyond just the archetypal analysis of, say, Jesus, and move to the historical or personal analysis.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the, where you are. I, I think here's the first move, is to say everything you've said is good. <laughs> you know? uh, I think there really are these great uh, Jungian archetypes embedded in the biblical narratives. I agree with my friend uh, Chris Kazor from LMU, who studied Peterson and this a lot, and said— what he does corresponds to the church fathers, what they would have called the moral sense of the scripture. You know, they say there are four senses of scripture, one of them being the moral sense. And we might say today the psychological sense, but that's what, what Peterson's very good at exemplifying. So I'd say, yeah, good, right, I I agree, you know. I might then begin to press him, but are there other senses of the Bible? Is there more to it than's going than is going on in those archetypal stories? In a similar way with Kant. Does the New Testament, in fact, present the archetype of the person perfectly pleasing to God? Yeah, sure it does. (laughs) Uh, Might we even construe a lot of the moral life in reference to that heuristic, uh, regulative idea? Yeah, sure. I'm okay with that. But there's more going on, because I would argue what really matters at the end of the day is that it it happened, (laughs) you know? It really happened. It's not just an idea that's now narratively expressed. It's a real person who, historically speaking, so embodied the archetype that he transformed the whole world. This is not just a narrative projection of a heuristic or regulative idea. If you want, it's a projection of God's mind. The word became flesh and that matters see and the New Testament and the Bible as a whole is very interested in the historical manifestations and the historical ways that God has communicated himself as well as being interested in the in the archetypal and heuristic uh, level so anyway that's that's where I would tease out or try to press uh, Jordan Peterson. Why do you think, um, for for youngians, for
0: Kantians, that questions of metaphysics are bracketed? Are, do they? Do you think they just find them uninteresting? Or no, are there deeper no reasons.
1: No, I think it's because, and this is this is the central drama in many ways of modern philosophy, because they felt they, and and I think with a deep frustration in a way that they couldn't do it, that it's just not available to them. So I think Kant is with, with a sort of resignation like yeah i i kind of wish it but it, pure reason just can't reach these things and i i don't think the arguments work and so but i'm i'm i mean i'm caught now i'm trying desperately to hang on to what's really good and right and beautiful in religion and this is the way to do it um another key thing and this is how i boring people with these names but uh this great figure of lessing I always forget his first name. It's either Gotthold or Gottfried or something, but Lessing, L-E-S-S-I-N-G, is one of the most important players in modern thought because he gave rise to one great idea. Lessing said, there yawns between the um, uh, universal ideas of reason and the concrete facts of history, a great gulf, and, and it's called Lessing's gulf now, this great Gully, This great gulf in between the, what the reason wants, which is certitude, absolute truth, and what history can deliver, which is contingent and evanescent facts of, of history. And, and you can't get from one to the other. See, So a lot of the moderns, especially in religion, are either weeping over, trying to build bridges over, running away from, hurling themselves into Lessing's gulf. You know, And see, in a way, Kant is responding there, too, by saying, finally, look, it doesn't really matter whether there really was a Jesus who did all these things. What matters is—and again, look what he's doing—staying on one side of Lessing's Gulf, the pure ideas of—the of universal ideas of reason, th- these regulative ideas of the practical reason. Sure, that's all that matters, and we can bracket history. But see, Christianity can't do that. We we have to deal with Lessing's golf in a much more creative way than that. So that's maybe that's another lecture, you know.
0: Well, that sound means it's time for a question from one of our listeners. If you have a question, we'd love to hear it. Visit askbishopbaron.com. Ask anything about theology, spirituality, morality, philosophy, whatever's on your mind. We'd love to hear it. Today, we have a question from Jimmy who lives in Seattle. However, he's formerly from India and he's asking about Hinduism and how it compares to Christianity. So here's Jimmy's question.
1: This is Jimmy from Seattle. I'm Catholic, originally from India. Here is a hypothetical argument my Hindu friends could make. Western Christian civilization hasn't been exemplary. The British took over India. There was slavery and the Holocaust. On the other hand, we've been a tolerant civilization. Given this context, why become Christian? Besides, I'm perfectly happy with my religion and culture. My question is, how does one respond to this line of reasoning? Yeah, good. Thank you for that. Uh, here's my. It's going to sound maybe a little bit flip, but the answer is well, because it's true. <laughs> in other words, uh, it's not simply a matter of which one has given rise to the best behavior. Uh, let's say every single Christian in the world was a complete jerk. Well, but still, Christianity is true. <laughs> you know, so that's the reason. So you'd have to argue on different grounds there. Now, having said that, um. Is it supposed to make people better? Yes, indeed. Is it a scandal that lots of Christians have behaved in reprehensible ways? Absolutely. And it does indeed undermine evangelization. I get that. Now, I'd also maybe play a little bit on the other side of the question. I'm not entirely convinced that Hinduism has always been a model of (laughs) toleration and and, uh, nonviolence. I mean— uh, Gandhi didn't meet with immediate uh, agreement when he spoke to his uh, his Hindu uh, fellow believers about nonviolence. In fact, Gandhi learned that from uh, Matthew's Gospel when he was a young law student in London. Uh, talk to people today who are victims of uh, forms of, of Hindu fundamentalism. So again, just to maybe caution, I don't think it's it's some, simply an either-or, like those terrible Christians and these lovely uh, of Hindus. I, I, my own Christian convictions... <laughs> lead me to say that human beings are a bad lot we we just tend to go bad and i am pretty confident anywhere you look anywhere in the world you're going to find a lot of very bad behavior so in a way i suppose that that balances itself out that's a that's more of a secondary question what finally matters is is it true is it true is is god real did he send his son did he rise from the dead uh we have to look at those questions i suppose first Well, thanks so much for listening to this
0: episode of the Word on Fire Show. Listen, we mentioned this last week, but tomorrow, tomorrow, Tuesday, February 29th, begins our first ever Word on Fire Institute online summit. This is a virtual event for three days where we have expert interviews with people like Bishop Barron, our Word on Fire Institute fellows. The whole theme is evangelizing the unaffiliated. So you're going to want to sign up. Just go to wordonfireshow.com slash summit. Well, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.